Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Years of Americans. Happy Friday. It is Friday, September 18th, and I'm so excited to share with you episode 76 with two of the co-founders of Momo Shack Himalayan Dumplings from Dallas, Texas, Lee Zen and Tang. Really great conversation about their two journeys here as Asian Americans, how they maintain their full-time jobs while having a side hustle, creating amazing Momos from their own kitchens and one of them's mother is a co-founder and a colleague. Really excited to share with you uh, this story and hope you stick around to the end uh, to hear the entire interview. Two quick things that are really exciting here for us on the Dear Asian American end. Uh, we have launched a Facebook community group. So if you want to engage with fellow listeners, supporters of the show, and even some guests of the podcast, please join us at the Dear Asian Americans community on Facebook. Uh, the link will be in the show notes, or you can just search Dear Asian Americans community on the platform, and you'll be able to find us there. And again, a big shout out to Team Koba Coffee for being a supporter of the show. Visit them at koba.coffee, that's C-O-B-A dot coffee, and put in code D-A-A or podcast to make sure that you are getting your 15% discount. And that way you'll also be supporting the show. Big shout out to our Patreon members helping us financially with the show. And we really, really, really appreciate your support uh, hope you're staying safe out there. Hope you're staying healthy. And without further ado, here now is my conversation with the co-founders of Momo Shack. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Dear Asian Americans, wherever you are, whenever you're listening to this. We wish you all the health, safety, and happiness in the world. You're probably listening to this at some point in September. And so the world is still a uh, not as a safe place as we could have made it, should have made it, want to make it. And so wherever you are, um, please stay safe, stay home, don't see your friends if you don't have to, register to vote, vote early if you can. Um, 2020, and, and we, we've said this enough and we've heard this enough, but um, it might be the most important year ever in history. So, and, and through all this, I, I think what, you know, what a lot of us have done, um, whether it is, you know, at, at some point it's very frustrating. I understand I, I have two kids at home and, you know, being at home with them and trying to work at home. Is, is very challenging, but it's actually given a lot of us a chance to cook at home and to share meals with loved ones. And for many of us um, that are immigrants that are, you know, the, the really beneficiaries of two amazing cultures, we've been given the gift to discover new foods or to rediscover new foods or, you know, sort of go down that rabbit hole of I want to cook something new or, you know, for, for some it's because my favorite restaurant is closed or things like that. But that home food, the the things that as we grow older, we always come, come back to. And, and so my guests today are, are two friends from college um, who are now together, who have now together started a company called Momo Shack Himalayan Dumplings to provide authentic handmade Nepali dumplings from home or at home. Uh, they do delivery, they do pickup, they do pop-ups from Dallas. It's my pleasure and honor to welcome Lizen Amatia and Tang Zhuang to the Asian Americans. Hey guys. Hey, how's it going? How is 2020 for you guys in Dallas? How are things over there? Man, it's it's been a crazy year. I mean, to say the least, right? I remember like New Year's Eve, you know, December 31st, everyone was doing the the 10 year challenge and you know, shouting out <laughs> to the next next decade and all of that. And everyone had 2020 goals and now here we are in September, sheltering in place. <laughs> and it's a leap year. It's extra long. <laughs> 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 I, 
when it rains, it pours. When it rains, it pours. Tong, before we start talking about uh, your your origin stories and uh, learning about how this all came about, just share with the audience what Mamushak Dumplings is. What do you guys sell? How do you guys sell it? And share with us a little bit more about your your business. All right. So Mamushak is a starter brand consisted of four different people from three different parts of the world, from Nepal, Vietnam, and Mexico. Right now, we're specializing in authentic handmade dumplings uh, from Nepal, aka Momos. Right, we started in December 2017 uh, at the Dallas Farmers Market as a pop-up, you know, just to test the market. And over time, you know, we did more pop-ups with local breweries and and businesses. Uh, since COVID hit, we had to pivot our operation uh, in order to sell those Momos out of frozen dumpling bags. And uh, yeah, that's pretty much our operation right now. Hopefully COVID is over soon and we can, you know, ramp back up to a full scale. That is, you know, um, a, a quick look through your Instagram and you guys are on point. You guys are masters of the meme. You guys know how to engage <laughs> your audience. Because um, dumplings in and of itself, like not the sexiest thing to sell, right? And not not the easiest thing to really create content around, but you guys have done it and, and you guys have garnered a following, uh, not just locally in the Dallas-Fort Worth area, but globally. And and so kudos to you guys and, you know, the team behind, um, you know, that's really, really made this happen. I, I want to share with the audience how I found these guys. I am a big follower uh, and content consumer of Gary Vaynerchuk, and many of you might be the same. And I was scrolling through Instagram one day and he was screaming at these Asian people about how to sell dumplings in a different way. And I just stopped and I was like, holy crap, this is awesome. And then, so I watched the whole damn thing. And, you know, and, and, and I, as soon as I was done, I, I went on Instagram and I was like, guys, this is weird, but I just saw you guys on Gary's Instagram. I need you guys to come on my podcast, please. And so, you know, maybe that was a month ago, uh, but here we are. Lisa, tell us about that experience. How did it happen? And what are some of the things you guys learned from it? Yeah, uh, I mean, it was definitely a, a surreal experience, um, to say the least. So story is also pretty unique. Um, one of my, my buddies from UT Dallas now works for Gary B, like in his community team. So it's a team of maybe 25 to 30 people. And he's one of the, the folks who, you know, does content and, and whatnot for mm-hmm. Gary. So we knew tea with Gary, we, Gary V was happening. Uh, one of our other partners, Daniel, who's not on right now, but you know he's a big fan as well, and he, he he's the type of guy who just goes for it, right? So um, I remember him telling us he tried to enter us into tea with Gary V a few times because the way you get in mm-hmm. is you have to text the number and you get randomly selected. Uh, so he brought up the idea. So we said, all right, let's get together for an hour, just whiteboard and brainstorm on what are some possible questions that we would want to ask if we get on the show. So here we are in, in this room right now and, you know, just trying to brainstorm coming up with questions. And we just say, you know what, it's 2020, like let's shoot our shot. So we just, we, all the three of us just texted the number, you know, I think we had each one of us had a random question, not nothing planned out and put the phone down go back to brainstorming 20 minutes later my friend that I knew from UT Dallas that I mentioned texts me and says, Hey, you guys trying to get on Gary V? Like I just saw three different entries from, from the guys. And I was like, yeah, man, like, <laughs> you know, for sure. 
And uh, he's like, yeah, like, we'll, we'll make it happen. You know, the, the way you guys are moving and the way you guys are creating content and just engaging with customers. Like, I think it'll be a really fun, you know, five minutes with Gary. So um, the main point of that whole story was even like, we paused for a second before we submitted our question and said, we asked the question to ourselves, like, should we text Zane, who's the guy that works for Gary V and see if he could get us in. But we decided not to, because I think the three of us really believe in just earning it rather than just getting something. Right. And I think that comes with, I mean, we can relate so many things with being immigrants, but that's definitely one of those things is growing up. We have to earn every single thing. Nothing is ever given to us. So it's just kind of ingrained in us and, and it, it worked out at the end of the day. That's really cool. And, you know, it's, it's so crazy how uh, when, when we try to trace back some of the craziest things that have happened in our lives to, you know, just one thing here or one thing that didn't happen and, and really, you know, the power of the butterfly effect or, you know, the ripple effect or however you want to define it. Um, it's really cool how, how uh, you know, um, crazy things in life happen. Yeah. So the, the business lesson up front before we get even to the story is just do it, right? Like mm -hmm. DM that person, reply for stuff. Um, what's the worst that could happen, right? Like they ignore you. Well, they weren't talking to you anyway. So like, what have you lost, right? Like 30 seconds, a little bit of ego, like who cares? The upside mm -hmm. is so, so much better. I'm so excited to talk to you guys. You guys are from Dallas, um, which is growing a, a growing hub for Asian Americans and is becoming a lot more diverse than people give credit for. And so I want to start with you, Lisa, and let's go back to you and learn about your Asian American origin story. How did your family end up in America? How old were you did, when you came? And, and share, share with us a little bit about your early childhood experiences. Yeah, sure. So I'm originally from Nepal. Uh, moved here when I was 10 years old. Um, but how we got here was essentially there's a, something called diversity visa. Many of the listeners might know what that is. Uh, also short name is DV. So um, my dad actually applied to it. And for folks who don't know, uh, just to give a bit of context on that, it's kind of like playing the mega million or, or the lottery. So every year, I think maybe 20,000 or 30,000, I don't remember the exact number off the top of my head, but uh, there's a select number of folks who get selected and then they get to, you know, come over here with the green card. So my dad did it and he's always been the lucky one you know he still plays scratch scratch offs and things like that i think he's won like five thousand before which is crazy um but yeah he so he won it and i was very young at that age obviously maybe like nine and a half ten didn't really know what was happening besides we're moving and all i knew was we're leaving the country and moving somewhere brand new leaving family all of that stuff um so yeah 10 years old went straight to california where my uncle was I uh, was there for maybe six months and, you know, being immigrants, my parents put me into school as soon as we basically landed in California. Uh, I think I did school maybe for a month or two months and then moved over here to Texas. So that's kind of where, where it all starts for me is 10 years old. And then how did you guys choose Texas? Was there, was there, and is there a, a Nepali community there that they were drawn to and, and how did you find sort of your identity being formed in Dallas? Yeah, so there's definitely a, a stronger Nepalese um, representation here. Uh, it's in Irving mainly, which is about, you know, hour, hour and a half from where I live. So that was the main thing. And we also had uh, some family members here, so like close cousins. 
So that, that was another thing. And then the third thing was, you know, cost of living. California, as we all know, it's very, very tough, especially for immigrants that just moved over here. So we know Texas is, is a great place cost of living wise. And those are the main three reasons. And, and share with me a little bit on sort of what your ambitions were. Obviously, it sounds like your, your, your dad and your parents made the sacrifice not only to improve their lives, but yours and sort of your, your outcomes of opportunity here. Um, were there specific things, you know, on the show, we, we often joke about, you know, Dr. Lori Engineer and these very, very tight, small, uh, tightly defined outcomes that our parents want for us. And, mm-hmm. and these are all, you know, stereotypes, obviously, but um, how did they define success for you or how did they define success for themselves in terms of what you would make of the sacrifices that they uh, went through for you? Yeah, that's a really good question. So when I was in Nepal, I really wanted to be in the army, which is pretty crazy. Um, but when I moved over here, you know, like it was very much stay within the box. Right. And I think a lot of listeners can relate to that when I say it is go to school, do well, solid work ethic, keep your head low, graduate, and then get a solid job. Uh, my, my parents really wanted me, especially my mom really wanted me to be an engineer. Um, uh, but I'm definitely not, you know, I guess if you were to stereotype like a typical Asian, I'm not very good at math, not very good at science and engineering requires a little bit of both, definitely a lot more math, but it wasn't my thing. Um, so that was the main goal was, you know, just my parents immigrated here. They're sacrificing everything. They had a good, you know, solid job back home, nice house, friends and family members. Now they barely have anybody and they're working opposite schedules. Dad goes at night, mom goes in the morning. They barely see each other. Um, so I didn't question it at that time as well. It was more so like, let me do this. Um, it was kind of a path that was laid out and it was just, you know, graduating college. That was the the biggest goal. I think that's, you're right. That's something that all of us, most of us can, can resonate with. And yeah. And, and so we'll talk about in a little bit how you're doing sort of both, both of what, a little bit of what, what they saw for you and what they, you know, want for you. And, um, and the other part, which I think is um, equally rewarding in a different way uh, for, for children of immigrants to, to create something. Tong, let's go to you. Um, how did you end up in Dallas? How did the, the Yuang family end up in Dallas? And share with us a little bit about your, your earlier years. Yeah, for sure. So uh, I'm from Vietnam. You know, my mom is originally from the Nguyen Yang, which is the middle of the Vietnam. And my dad was from Saigon, which is the southern capital. You know, they met in high school, high school sweetheart, and I decided I got married, popped me out in 93. Uh, so I was raised up until I was 10 uh, in Vietnam. So, you know, the formative years, you know, learning all the culture and everything. And then we got the news that my uncle, who, who came over to the U.S. in the 80s to escape, you know, the war, uh, you know, got the paperwork done and, and decided to bring my dad over. So, so we came over uh, to Dallas in 2004, and uh, yeah, we've been pretty much here ever since. I think it's really, really interesting, and uh, all of us, I came here when I was eight, both of you guys came here when you guys were, you know, about 10. The identity that we formed, even at those early years, really changes the way that we view ourselves here in America, because... In the beginning, it was, of course, we are the other, right? We just moved here. We chose to move here. 
And now in 2020, as we talk about Asian American identity, it's really under the assumption that we do belong here, just fundamentally because we are here. Um, I'm trying to raise two kids now, it's three and one that are born here. And so what what's that going to be like, right? And I think it's so unique because we still live in, in two different cultures, right? Like to, to come here at 10, you, you know, were pretty fluent by the time you were in third or fourth grade in your native tongue. And, and it seems like for all three of us, this wasn't some like master plan that had happened for over a long time where they sent us to English school to like figure it out and like learn stuff before we jumped on a plane. I was like, oh shit, we're going. Right. <laughs> so we, we figured it out like as, as, uh, you know, as we went, like I, I learned a lot of my English from just watching cartoons and stuff because how else are you going to teach young kids back then? Right. Um, our parents didn't even know the languages to teach us. So I, I think this is, you know, to, to see, to know what you guys do now and sort of the origin story, uh, very, very meaningful. Um, Lisa, let's go back to you. Um, share with us a little bit more about your adolescent years, um, as you were going through high school and ultimately into college at UT Dallas. Um, what were some of the things that you wanted to do? And earlier we talked about sort of the expectations of our parents collectively. Um, how did you balance that? What were some of the, you know, extracurricular things that you were involved in from a fun social or cultural perspective to uh, make sure that you could live your own life, but also, uh, you know, make good on the sacrifices of your parent, your parents? Yeah, I think, I think on the sacrifices, you know, that my parents made on that front, it was just following the traditional path of going through the school system and then getting into college. Cause I, I would be the first one in my immediate family to, to get to that point. Um, outside of that, in terms of just my adolescent years, it was just trying to adapt, right? Like coming from Nepal at 10 years old, where everything is very, very different. You know, I've, I've mentioned this a few times to thing before, but even the light switch here, you know, you flip it up and it's you turn it on there. It's a complete opposite to turn it on. So hot water is on the right here. It's on the left all that stuff. So just trying to adapt to it. And then also trying to adapt to the social cues and, you know, social behaviors with, with people. Um, in Nepal, we wore the same outfit every day for, you know, three, four, five days. Um, and I remember being in elementary school, fifth grade, I, I was doing that just because I didn't know any better. And, you know, obviously getting made fun of for that. So uh, luckily I was very young. So none of that, very, you know, none of that phased me as it might today. Um, just knowing, you know, as you get more mature things, you realize how words can hurt. Um, but being young, it was mainly just like, okay, like I'll just switch it up. <laughs> uh, but you know, things like that. And just trying to, it was all about adaptation, man. Just trying to blend in as much as possible, trying to learn the culture, um, played a lot of sports that helped a lot. Um, did not play any sports in Nepal. So even, you know, getting started, got made fun of, but since I was so young, it didn't save me, like I mentioned. Uh, so that really helped me create a, a small friend group here. Because, you know, I think sports is definitely one of the things that can connect people no matter where you're from. So um, that's one of the things. And then going through the school system, you know, I quickly, it was very clear to me that I was the only Nepali in, in the school. Um, elementary school, middle school, uh, up until high school. I would say when I got to college is when, you know, I saw a couple more Nepali people, which, which helped. Uh, but again, living in Plano and then the main community being in Irving, which is an hour and a half, and then parent schedules never ever matching up, things like that definitely lost touch with, with the community. 
you know, didn't really grow up with any Nepali people, uh, lost my, my native tongue a little bit as well. I don't have a English, I don't have an accent when I speak English, but I get made fun of when I'm <laughs> speaking Nepali now. So <laughs> the tables, tables have turned. Um, you know, when I go back home, yeah, my family members have a, a blast with that. Uh, but yeah, that's, that's sort of been, been the life. I, it's funny how we, I, I don't know, the, we want to, I, I often wonder when our parents first brought us here, um, now we view things very differently again, but how much of our mother tongue, how much of our culture they wanted us to, it, you know, keep intact. Or if there was this, you know, now we're in America and we want you to learn the language, um, you know, so much so that like they gave me an American name. They said, you know, we want you to fit in and not feel left out. Um, so, so I wonder, you know, um, how, how things would have been differently and, and how things are differently for recent immigrants who are bringing their 10 year olds to this country now and, and how they view sort of keeping the traditions alive and then keeping the language alive. Um, cause I'm sure you, you guys have friends and as, as I, as do I, um, Asian American friends who don't speak the language at all. And they just, you know, they're whether by choice or not. Um, and I think in, in certain cases when they hit certain milestones in life or certain experiences uh, make them yearn for that language again or sort of wish that they had taken the time to learn it because perhaps it's the inability to communicate with their parents or the grandparents or or, or something. So, yeah, I, I think that's super fascinating, man. Um, Tung, I'll, I'll ask you the same. Uh, you know, after you grew up a little bit, um, you know, through high school and college, um, tell, tell us about that and then your journey through those adolescent years. Yeah, so um, on the same page as Leeson, you know what I mean? Like he was referring to, you know, the adaptation to the brand new culture. Like I came, yeah, like before I came to the U.S., uh, I, I knew like, hi, hello, and bye-bye, right? Like no nothing else. And, you know, as soon as I come over here, I was thrusted into like an all-white environment, like all-white kids and just pretty much learning how to speak letter by letter, uh, at a quick pace too, because, you know, obviously my accent was being made fun of a lot. And, um, and then my parents were, you know, mainly working the, pretty much the whole day. And I would, I would see them for dinner and then that's it. And, you know, you go to sleep early, wake up early and, you know, from speaking English strictly at school, which is, you know, 80% of the day and coming home to speaking Vietnamese for a little bit during dinner, like I, I lost touch with the Vietnamese culture um, pretty quick as I, as I grew up. Um, yeah, and, and in school, I I really liked math because that's what was hounded into my head uh, in Vietnam. And I think that was the only subject I excelled at. You know, I, I didn't really like anything else. I think my favorite class was recess. And going back to what Leeson said, you know, like uh, it's, it's because I got to play sports with other yeah. kids, right? And, and from there, you got to learn about like body language, social cues, and just, yeah. just having fun with, with other kids. Um, you know, and, and that was, you know, middle school-ish and going to high school um, is pretty much just me trying to figure out like this new identity. Like I'm no longer Vietnamese per se. That's how I felt like, but I was still the other two the majority of my classmates, All right? So in a limbo, didn't really know who I was. 
until, you know, I got to college. That's when, that's when I met Leeson and then, you know, figuring out that like, Hey, like there's people like me, you know, coming from another different culture into this, this land of the U S and, and trying to figure it out as we go. And I think that's where we really bonded is this the immigrant value. How did you guys meet? how did you guys become friends in college? So very first day of uh, freshman orientation, actually. Uh, yeah, it was like during intermission, you know, everyone's eating. And I, did, I didn't know anyone. I signed up late, showed up late, and then uh, walking around with my tray of food. And I saw Lee and, and, and his friends sitting at a table. And um, yeah, you know, it struck up the courage just to ask him, like, hey, like, you know, is it cool if I sit down? And I just became good friends since then. That's crazy. Yeah. <laughs> now we, we we joke about we joke about like what if I would have said no? <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't know. I mean, what if I? This is like silly stuff, but like you know, what if somebody had walked up ten seconds before, and then exactly. that, and then you would have thought, Tong, like, oh, these guys are paired up already, or you know, mm-hmm. yeah. um, wh- whatever. Like, it's wild. Uh, I actually have a couple friends that I still talk to that I met by orientation and in college now 20 years ago. And it's just, um, it's funny though. I, I think, and, and they're both Asian. Um, I think in those moments where we feel so out of place, our natural instinct, and perhaps it's like a, um, a survival instinct or a defense mechanism is for us to find comfort in people that at least look like us, or at least we feel mm-hmm. like we can, we can relate to. I, I think that's, that's so cool. And, and so today you guys, have both day jobs, the nine to five, doing the corporate and other, you know, traditional things. And, and you now own this business, which is an homage to uh, one of your cultures and, and a food that we all enjoy. Tell me about, like, what about your friendship in college and, and the food that is so special to us sort of was the impetus. Like, how did you guys start begin this conversation about, you know, maybe we should start a food business together? Yeah, so I think that goes way back to even, you know, when I was in Nepal before I moved over here. So as a kid, I've always loved, you know, momos. I mean, if you ask any of my family members, you know, that's the number one thing that they would say. Uh, I even remember one time my dad taking me, you know, picking me up after school in Nepal and just being like, hey, let let me surprise you and take you for dinner and eat some momos. And I remember vividly, which is crazy, it was probably like in fourth grade, um, just chowing down on the plate as soon as it arrived. And I pretty sure I swallowed a whole dumpling without really chewing it. And, <laughs> and uh, it almost killed me because I was choking and my dad had to like legit, you know, what you see in movies, slap my back, hello loud, and then uh, basically save my life. So anyways, <laughs> that, that's a hell of a way to go. Um, <laughs> cho- cho- choking on a momo. <laughs> Yeah, I would would have died happy for sure. (laughs) Life would have been complete. Um, Yeah, so, you know, going back to that and then growing up here, you kind of touched on it earlier, like the adolescent years throughout middle school and high school, anytime we made momos, you know, it was always a family event. I mean, I'm sure a lot of folks can can relate to this is like dumpling, the, the dumpling making process itself is very much a all hands on deck, family and community event. Mm-hmm. There's no one person that can do it all by themselves. Each person around the dinner table has a very specific role. And when those roles combine, it, it creates the dumpling, right? 
Um, so, you know, that was always a thing in my household. And because of that, it was also not a, not something we had, you know, every night or every week. It was very, very rare. Um, so when we did have it, we would make a lot of it. And then I would pack it up for lunch, take it to school. And I would always have my, my friends test it out. Like, Hey man, you got to try this out. Like it's my favorite. And, you know, every single person, since I was a kid growing up here that had it really, really enjoyed it. I did this up until my last job actually, uh, before my current job. So I've been doing it basically, you know, all my life, it feels like, and taking it back to UT Dallas, you know, senior, junior year or senior year, I think, uh, I was already in my first year of corporate and thing was doing, uh, I think you were wrapping up your, your last semester and they, Mm -hmm. him and two of my other buddies were in this, um, like a business idea competition. Right. So they were really bouncing ideas on what's something innovative that we can pitch. And I think that's where sort of the, the snowball effect happened is when, you know, they had this idea and then, you know, just they brought it up to me and we were kind of just brainstorming ideas and we figured like, Hey, why don't we do something ourselves rather than only trying to apply for this, uh, this competition. And I think that's really where that snowball effect started. And, uh MoMA was something that I'm, I'm familiar with. And I just had, you know, this hunch and this feeling that people would love it. And there's a gap here in Dallas. And actually just a lot of, a lot of places in, in the U S don't really know about MoMA's, right? I think New York is a big spot, Irving and maybe a couple other spots sprinkled around. Um, but it's not very mainstream, if you will. So I had a hunch and then that that's really when we started brainstorming on that idea and picking up on it. For folks who may not understand, or I guess fully um, be familiar with with momos, um, it it is a dumpling which is you know prevalent in a variety of Asian cultures. Um, what makes momo uniquely different than some of the other dumplings that we see from different cultures? Yeah, so I believe momo originally the the name momo and the food itself like originally or originates from uh, Tibet. So. You know, no one really knows the history of dumplings or where it truly comes from. But Momo itself, um, people back in the day from Nepal trading with Tibet, right? That's where that's where it really starts. And what happened was essentially in Nepal, there's a lot of South Asian aromatic seasonings like, you know, cumin, coriander, ginger, garlic paste, things like that that's used. So that's how Nepalese took Momo and adapted it to their own culture. That's, that's where it really starts. And that's what makes it so unique is typically the seasonings and the different types of vegetables that's used in it, along with the sauce. So I think most people are probably familiar with the sauce being like soy sauce or something of that nature. Uh, but with Momo's itself, it's, it's kind of like a chutney, maybe. It, it depends on the person who's making it. Like every person has their own secret recipe, uh, but it's typically like tomato-based or uh, cilantro-based. Those are like the two main ones. When did you know that people would be willing to pay for it? I didn't. <laughs> I didn't know, <laughs> honestly. Um, you know, I think a lot of our, our story, uh, Jerry, you touched on this a little bit, you know, the business lesson was just, just, just fucking do it. So that, that's really how we started. Um, I had this hunch. We planned this stuff out. Uh, the idea was to go to a farmer's market down in Dallas. That's the main, it's the biggest one probably in downtown. 
So we submitted a online application for that. And, you know, you have to submit some pictures and do a little description of what you're trying to sell, all of that. And um, we didn't hear back for maybe about four weeks. So followed up with the folks there. And the reason that they hadn't responded, their reasoning was, you know, they're having some electricity issues. Um, they were like, try next year. I was like, okay. Hung up the phone, disappointed. And then uh, talked to Daniel, who's our other partner in the, in the business. And we were like, hang on a second. It's like September. If they're having electricity issues, they can't go on for the rest of the year. Like something doesn't seem right. So we followed up with them again. And we said, hey, this time, let us bring you some momos. Like we'll bring you some samples so you can test it out. And then just tell us what we did wrong or what we could improve on is what we said for next year. So we took the samples there, met with the, the lady who was managing the farmer's market. And she was a little skeptical at first, but she had a bite of the Momo. She's never had it before. <laughs> and she was like, yo, can you start this weekend? <laughs> and we're like, all right, all right. No, not, we don't have anything planned out. Like just give us a couple, give us at least like two weeks. Um, and then we'll, we'll get the stuff started. So yeah, I mean, didn't really know, honestly, like it was just, you know, going off of intuition. Um, and then two weeks later we had our very first, first event there. So they went from giving you a baloney excuse to not invite you to, I need you to start right now. Cause I love this. Yeah, basically. Yeah. <laughs> Pretty much. Pretty much. <laughs> Why did you guys think the initial no was, was it a lack of familiarity or do you think it was something else? So it's funny because when we submitted the application, um, you know, we were, we were hyped about the picture that we took. And when we met with the lady, she was, when, her, her direct feedback was the picture was awful. Like you can tell what it was. So it was definitely the picture. It's a lack of familiarity, right? Cause like, you know, no one, like I mentioned, most people don't know what Momos are, or what makes them unique or, you know, different. Um, and just like the awareness and education piece of it too. It's just kind of new at the moment. And Tong, tell me about the very first time you tried the Amatia family Momo. Oh, okay. Yeah. The very first time. Uh, yeah, I think Leeson brought it to, to UTD uh, to like show us like, hey man, I got some Momos. You want to try some Momos? Uh, yes, I have Chinese dumplings and then just like, that's what I'm used to. But like, what are these Momos? And I took a bite into it and I just realized all the like Nepali inspired flavors that it had in it. You know, like cumin, ginger, garlic, you know, that, that explosion of flavor that I wasn't used to. And, you know, uh, I'm used to the, the soy sauce vinegar. That, and then that we eat it with, uh, you know, and then the Momos had cilantro and tomato sauce, which gives it a completely different color. And uh, yeah, going back to my childhood too, like, you know, uh, I was at school, you know, learning English, you know, pretty much the whole day, didn't talk to my parents and they were working. The only time that we did have together is at the dinner table is when we share foods and, you know, we talk about food. And, and when Lizen showed me that, you know, it was the same communication style that my, that my parents had, you know, just sharing food. And like, I understood it at that point. It's like, man, like I, I can, I can vibe with you. You know, I, I can, I can see this because I think for me, like Asian people, like our taste buds are different. Right. But when eating that, that dumpling, that Momo, I was like, dude, I think Asian people are going to love this. You know? So I, I think from that point on, I was like, Hey dude, I'm on board. That's so cool. Um, it's it's rare. Um, maybe it's, I don't know. 
I don't know for how many foods we can actually remember the first time we ate it. Um, and then I'll ask you the same thing. Like, when, when did you individually, before you, you talked to it, did you have any inkling that this could turn into something that you guys could turn into a business? Like, was it, you know, like, how good was it? And what was, you know, sort of the, how did it go from like, I really like this and this is amazing to, hey guys, maybe this is, maybe we're onto something here. I think not until, okay, not until our like third time at the farmer's market, you know, our very first day, you know, it, it was very, very busy, right? And um, I think, Lizen, you can speak to this more, but like we started with the intent of just like testing the market. Like, are people, like, would they love it? Or would they like, you know, think it's okay? Like, we don't know. So, so we started it. And I think maybe, um, the third day of the market, uh, yeah, that's when people still started showing up. And then we take a look at our Yelp page and it just blew up, like I think 5,000%. And we what? all looked at each other. Yeah, right? Like it was, it was crazy traffic. And wow. uh, yeah, and I think, I think it has to do with the fact that like the Dallas population haven't seen Momos before, mm. right? It's just something so unique like to the... To the environment, like no one knew what it was, and once they tried it, they're like, "Man, gotta have it." <laughs> that that's so cool. How, how did so you guys are um, share with us sort of the the dynamics of the business? You guys are a um, you said a, a pickup, a pop up, sort of a business model, uh, and let's talk in terms of like pre COVID. How did you guys start the business? Was there ever, you know, chat about opening a brick and mortar store? Why was the decision made to go sort of just the uh, the hybrid model? And, you know, to also share with us some lessons and the thought process and the conversations that you guys all had as, as friends turned business partners into doing both the day job and then this as a side venture instead of, you know, I don't know, borrowing a ton of money or you know, just setting up shop somewhere and saying like, I'm just going to be a restaurant entrepreneur. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So when we first started at the Dallas farmer's market, I think the reason we chose that spot is I used to just venture out there a few times. And I think when I had like family or friends coming into town, it was a really spot, a really good spot to go. Uh, just cause you could get a variety of different foods. You could see all the different vendors, just a little, you know, lively, lively spot to be. And it's also just a vibe that the spot has, right? The supporting mom and pop shops, local businesses, things like that. So, you know, every time I, before Momo Shack, every time I used to go there, I used to tell myself, okay, I'm only going to spend, you know, $20. And that would never happen because I would always end up spending way more. Because <laughs> uh, there's so much good stuff out there in one, one central location. So that's sort of the reason we chose that as our starting ground, right? Like it's a perfect spot to try something new. There's a ton of food traffic. And we knew that although there's a lot of options, uh, we're offering something that most people haven't seen. Maybe a few have, but most people haven't. And we're also newbies at that time. Right? We're definitely the youngest ones out there. Uh, just for reference, there's, it's a team of four. So me and my, uh, Bang, my mom, who's the executive chef, of course, it's her, it's her secret recipe. And then Daniel. So, you know, we're just, for immigrants trying to start something from scratch. And I think 
just doing it with, you know, good intent and passion is what really um, people can kind of vibe off of. And I think that's why it really worked out at the beginning. And business model wise now we're doing, you know, COVID hit, obviously, for everyone listening, we all know that. So we had to switch towards something that was contactless. Um, and then we chose to do frozen bags mainly because November 2019, I believe, 2018, um, we entered into another business idea competition, this time for Momo Shack um, at, the, at UT Dallas. And um, that's also a crazy story, man. So like, you know, Daniel and Fang got started on the online application. Um, and then at the very end, at 11.59, outside of a Starbucks, um, we submitted the application. It was due at midnight. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it was, it was a crazy story because, like, you know, Starbucks closed at 10, I think. But Daniel and I got kicked out. So we parked this car real close to the Starbucks, like the very first parking spot. <laughs> so we could take their Wi-Fi, finish the application. And then we submitted it, you know, I think it was like 11.58 and it just kept loading and loading and loading. And then 11.59 it submitted and we're like, all right, yes. And then, you know, a couple of weeks go by and then I guess the, the guests liked the idea of it. And then they, they said, Hey, come in for semifinals. But what that consisted of was basically doing a five to, you know, seven minute pitch um, in a shark tank style, style room. So it was uh, judges of maybe seven to eight people. Um, so I had to go in there and just present it on time, deliver the pitch properly, answer their questions properly, all of that stuff. And I believe there were over 300 online applications and it went down to maybe like 80 in the semifinals. And then after that, the top six were chosen to actually present at the, the main auditorium in front of, you know, a big crowd and they do that annually. So we got selected into the top six. And then I'm um, not sure if, if you're familiar with Tan Franz. He's the guy on Netflix, Queer Eye. He was actually the celebrity yeah. judge. So got a chance to meet him as well. Uh, but yeah, it was, it was a very cool experience. And throughout that process, you know, uh, since we are newbies and we still are, uh, we have to look to guidance, right? Like we don't have anybody in our lives really to say like, you know, I've done this so you can follow my steps. It's all trying to source information from you know podcasts like what you're doing or gary v and and whatnot um so utd was great in that because while we were practicing for our pitches you know they were more than happy to review with us and also give us feedback um and the main feedback they gave gave us was to think big and the reason for that was our initial idea for the pitch was to do a brick and mortar at um sort of a food hall type of environment. Mm. Uh, but in their eyes, you know, they're getting like tech ideas, they're getting science and innovation. And, you know, it's usually tech geared. And when they saw us wanting to do like brick and mortar, they were like, no, like you got to think a lot bigger. And that's when the guidance like really helped. And because then we said, okay, like not brick and mortar, let's try to be a, a frozen food, like national dumpling brand, because yeah, there's a lot of dumplings out there for frozen, but it doesn't doesn't really exist for Momos at the at the large scale. So that was mm -hmm. that was our pitch for the the BIC, and that really prepped us because, you know, even though we didn't know it at that time, just having that idea in the back of our minds set us up for what we're doing today. Um, you know, with that being said, November last year we tested our first frozen food, our frozen Momo uh, round where we. We just, you know, we're, we're a big proponent of just starting. So 
uh, although we wanted, you know, the nice packaging with the logo and things like that, we need, there's no way to do that. It's better to just get a nice, great value Ziploc bag, throw the, <laughs> throw the momos and the sauce in there and just DM customers, right? Like the customers that we have a relationship with um, and just ask them like, hey guys, we're starting something new. Would you be interested in purchasing? Like, let us know. I think uh, we submitted, we sent DMs for maybe like 20, 25 people and 17 of them said yes. So right off wow. the bat, like in just, you know, a couple hours. Um, so that, that was a great start and we did it in November and that was the last time we did it. And then when COVID hit, it was just like a natural transition, right? Or at least it felt more natural than just trying to start from scratch. So it seems like you guys had pivoted your business a little bit anyway, or at least, you know, it wasn't the frozen contactless stuff wasn't necessarily a pure reaction to what was going on in the world. It was something that you guys had been inspired to do going, going beyond that. Um, Tong, tell me a little bit about sort of the, you know, the lessons that you've learned in creating a business with friends. I always find entrepreneurs who are doing culturally relevant food stuff so amazing. We've had a lot of them on the show. Um, the fam sisters of Amsam are creating a sauce that's direct to consumer. Um, we've had coffee folks. We've had, we have Vietnamese coffee folks on the show. Uh, we had Vietnamese fish sauce on the show. We had Korean makgeolli on the show. And now we're having, you know, Nepali uh, Momo on the show. Like, you know, we can probably create our own uh, like feast if, if we wanted to. But but share with us, you know, as you've created this together and, and sort of run the business side of it, like what what are some lessons that you've learned that make it extra unique? Because you're not selling hamburgers, you're not selling hot dogs. Mm -hmm. This is meaningful food and you're developing relationships with your customers. Um, and then so share with, the, share, share with us a little bit of lessons on that. Yeah, for sure. So, um, you know, our team is consisted of four immigrants from, you know, four parts of the world. And I think that's what makes we bond, like, that's the thing that we bond over the most, you know, like the, the challenges and struggles that we went through, you know, when entering into the U.S. So then, you know, in any obstacles that we face, you know, with Momo Shack, we, we always, you know, huddle up. And just just think about ways that we can overcome them, you know, based on on our upbringing. And I think we we have a special way of just agreeing with each other, even when there's a, a difference. We we work our ways and find a compromise in in all the, that we face. And I think Lizen does a pretty good job at recognizing the strengths and weaknesses of, of each person and, and I guess assign a role for, for each individual person that he thinks that they would excel at. Right. So with him, like he's, he's a master storyteller of the brand, you know, the design and, and uh, I guess the, just the branding aspect of, of Momo Shack, right. You have Daniel, the, the businessman, Right. The every every business partnership that we've had is, you know, conducted to Daniel. And you know, Minu is the master chef executive director of our, of our menu. Right. And me, I think uh, I excel at, you know, talking and engaging with people and you know, bringing Momo Shack to the net different networks. Right. So I think, you know, being just being 
a team of, of immigrants have have really taught me that you know you're able to adapt and and really recognize the strengths and weaknesses um, of the team that that you have. That's very cool, Lizen. So usually, mom mom's a business partner, right? Yeah. She makes the food. She makes the mm-hmm. magic happen. What was her reaction when you first told her that you wanted to sell her food? Uh, so she was the last person I told, actually. <laughs> <laughs> Mom, we got this great idea, but you have to say yes. <laughs> yeah, it was like, hey, it's happening tomorrow. <laughs> uh, no, but in, in all seriousness, she was the last person I told. Uh, you know, like those brainstorming nights at ET Dallas was, you know, the, the three of us. And it was just like, all right, we can do this. And, you know, didn't know anything, but we just figured we'll get something started uh, going back to the Dallas farmer's market when the, the lady who manages it tried it said, okay, you're on, you know, this weekend, I said, give us two weeks. Uh, in those two weeks, we had, we had to basically figure out, okay, what do we need? Right. We learned about mm-hmm. food manufacturers, license, food handlers, license, like all of that stuff that we had no clue about. So we got those processes in place. Um, and then I believe like maybe two, three days before our first market event, uh, I approached her and I said, Hey, we're going to do this Momo thing. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and her initial reaction was a big fat. No, she's like, I'm not doing that. And I was like, why? It's just Momo's, you know, she's like, are you kidding me? Like, do you know how hard it is to make Momo's? And I was like, what do you mean? Like it's Momo's. We have it, you know, every couple months, like it's not that hard. Um, and that is obviously the ignorance in me because like I mentioned earlier, everyone has a role. I didn't understand all of the roles. I just understood my role, uh, growing up and, <laughs> and that role was mainly just eating the, the momos, right. It was, didn't really help out around the table as much. Um, but yeah, it was, that was a very big, you know, awakening call. Cause first it was convincing my mom trying to get on the same page as her. You know, she said her, her deal was I'll do it this one time. That was her, that was her deal. So I was like, okay, and the night before we get into a commercial kitchen and I'm thinking, you know, we'll rent this stuff. We'll rent this kitchen out for two hours. Like we'll be done. Dude, we were there for <laughs> eight hours. I'm talking, we went at like maybe 9 PM and left at like four or 5 AM. And the market was at 9 AM the next day. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was a cluster to say the least, but it was a very big awakening call. And I think what's really worked out in the situation is it's it's also in it's brought a passion from my mom's side as well you know now she is she's all about cooking she loves it so much that anytime you know things over or daniel's over uh she's always bringing out new dishes she's like hey try this try this and like if you don't try it as soon as it's she brings it out then she continues to like yo you gotta try it when it's hot and fresh or it won't be good you know She's really big into that. And then I think that comes from just customers eating her, her food and really liking it. Like it's, she, she says it better than I will, but you know, it just gives her goosebumps. How does she feel? Well, so that's what she said the first time she said, I'm going to do it one time and no, that obviously didn't work. That didn't Um, work. What was the turning point for her? to go all in and, and become a partner and, uh, you know, run production basically. Uh, 
Yeah, I, I think it's just customer feedback. You know, like I remember telling her, yo, people are going to love this. Like, you have to trust me. And I think a lot of what I do and what I would say is just intuition based. I'm, I guess I'm mm. more intuitive than, than I think. But, you know, that was my thing. But there's like, trust me, people will love it. Like, I don't have the facts and I don't have all the, the details right now. But if you just trust me this one time. So we, we did the very first event and she just saw the outpouring love and support that, you know, people gave. I mean, it wasn't anything crazy, but for what we're starting and what we're doing, it was huge to us, you know. And I think that was really the the thing that kind of flipped the switch for her. And how does she feel about the business now? Oh man, she loves it. She's she's like, hey, when are you guys gonna quit? Like, let's do this full time. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's talk about that a little bit. And then both of your parents, right? Um, again, we, we've been talking about all show. Both of you guys came here on your way at at age ten, and really a tough journey and a decision by your parents to come and start anew. Um, you both have, you know, amazing day jobs, but you have this other thing that probably keeps you awake at night and is the thing that you're actually passionate about. Um, you know, Tong, let's go to you first. How do your parents see the balance of it? And, you know, do they have an opinion on, you know, you doing both and, and how have they been supportive? Have they been supportive? Uh, to be honest with you, like, I don't think they know exactly what I'm doing on the side right now. Like, they know I'm selling dumplings, but, but other than that, like, they, um, so, you know, like typical Asian parents, you know, they, they want the traditional route for you. Uh, I think growing up, like my parents wanted, wanted to be in the, the health, the health field, like either pharmacist or, or doctor. And, um, they, they weren't really pressuring me on doing it, but in the back of my mind, I know. They wanted to, um, but, you know, at the end of the day, I think what they were happy with is me securing a job, right, and finding that stability for the family. And, um, yeah, I, I think I brought it up a couple of times with them before, like, hey, like, you know, you, you see me doing, you know, Momo's full time. And I think at the end of the day, like, the, the question is, like, is it going to bring us money, right? And... And hopefully that's the that's the goal, right? To be able to to sustain ourselves with Momos. Um, and I think once that happens, I think my parents would be happy. But until then, I think the the pressure is on. But have they tried it though? You said it was life changing for you. For me, uh, to be honest, like they didn't like it as much. I think they didn't like the flavors within the um, the dumplings. But me and my sister and and I guess everyone in like my generation, like the younger Asians, loved yeah. it. Because I think it's because we in fact experience with other cultures. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I think you bring up a good point, man. I think it's not that our parents want us to be, you know, it's not that they see these jobs in healthcare or in law or anything else as like the end all be all. They equate it with safety. They equate it with mm-hmm. um, you know, um stability and all these things that in their mind is what we should strive for, right? Um, all of our parents grew up in, you know, Nepal, Vietnam, and a career that was far different than it is today. Mm-hmm. And, and so, of course, for them, education was the only way out. And like, you know, nobody chooses to go sell dumplings. That's something that people had to do to survive. And so I, I can imagine. Um, and so, Lisa, I'm, you know, fascinated here with you because like you're, you're working with your best friends. You're working with your mom. You have a day job. 
this is your cultural food. Like, you know, like, how do you make sense of all this? What, what is, what, what keeps you going? And, and, you know, uh, both from a joy perspective and a challenge perspective at night. Yeah. So it's really my passion. Like that's what I've realized over, you know, the last three years, but it's something I've known since I was a kid. I just didn't realize it until recently. Right. Like I think a lot of times when people look at, you know, what am I passionate about? They'll find their answers if they look a little bit deeper within their childhood memories. And that, that's what, what's worked out for me. Um, yeah, it, it's, it's interesting. Definitely. Like it's, it's an amazing experience getting to work with your, your best friend and your mom. But at the same time, it's also like trying to balance, you know, okay. Like we have, uh, we already have a very solid foundation as best friends and, and obviously mom and son, but how do we think at a bigger picture and try to elevate where we're at, trying to take this to the next level. Right. And that, that requires a lot of learning individually uh, for myself and for thing. And, you know, my mom, like, for example, dude, my mom is an expert at using GIFs on, like, IG stories now. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like, and I would never in a million years imagine her to be doing that. Like, I did get comments from people saying, like, yo, your mom is hilarious on Instagram, you know. Um, but to see Does that. she run the Instagram for you guys? Uh, it's a mix of uh, the three of us. That's yeah. That's crazy. She runs her own uh, Chef Minu. If people want to follow her at Chef Minu, <laughs> <laughs> look out for those just might surprise you. Um, but yeah, man, just seeing that journey, you know, because I think, you know, we've been doing this for, uh, I think we're going on year three. So a year and a half ago, she was very, very much only focused on the food side of things. But now yeah. she's also understanding, you know, branding, marketing. She's listening to Gary V. Like she was there with Gary V when we had, you know, yeah, she was Gary V. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so yeah, she's really like coming along really nicely. And, and for us as well, we're learning a lot in our corporate jobs, you know, like we're learning how to maneuver a massive company and maneuver through hierarchy and bureaucracies and how systems are set up and all of that stuff. And we also like the importance of process, right? Like following a process and how that can help you excel at the same time. We're also learning things that we don't like, and that's what we want to change. Like we know corporate has its benefits, but at the same time, it also has some uh, negatives that really take away from, you know, your passion potentially. So it's just trying to maneuver those two things. And I think being able to do both at the same time is it's tough because you're going hundred percent on, on both, but without a team, like it's, it's just not possible. So I, I lean heavily on, on the guys and, and my mom to really take us to the next level. And it's, it's, it's a team effort, man. Like I just don't think there would be Momo Shack if one of us you know wasn't here. And I think the, I don't know if you can call it a, a friendship, um, but at least the, the partnership and, and the relationships that are behind the brand, you can sense and you can feel through your content and your energy because um, it's hard. Um, and, and you said it, it's your passion that drives you. There has to be a greater purpose. Um, sure, it's supposed to make money. But, you know, you're, you're making people happy. You're also getting to share a little bit of your own culture uh, with, with strangers. And you've developed, you know, a, a rabbit fan base that, you know, you, you DM with. I mean, restaurant folks, like, if you're not taking notes, like, they're dropping gems all over the place. You know, like, yes, it's a challenging time. But, like, you know who your customers are. 
or at least you should, right? And if you're if you're challenged and if you're frustrated that there's you know you can't open or whatever, like I don't know, like have you like thanked every single person that follows you on Instagram? No, there's too many. Well, like that's not an excuse. Just do it, right? And like I don't know, do it until Instagram says like stop because. If you DM too many people on a day, they tell you to stop, right? Like if you've never gotten that notice, you, you've never done it enough, right? Like it's, it's, there's traditional hustling or hard work to build a brand. And, and as we've talked about, and then sort of the theme through this entire thing is like, how do you run? Yes. The dumpling, the Momo is probably one of the most traditional foods in your culture, but now you're putting a 2020 twist on things, right? How, how do you scale it? How do you bring it to the masses and then build a fun brand around it. Um, so let, let's talk about that for a little bit. Tong, what, what is the future of Momo Shack for you? What are the lessons that you guys have learned pivoting the business multiple times in 2020? And, and what are you most excited for in this next chapter? Yeah, so I guess the thing that we've learned the most through, I guess, pivoting so, from so many different you know angles is that we're going to be able to do it, you know, regardless of what obstacles we run into, like Gleason said, like with a solid team, you know, together, I think, you know, we, we just need to like sit down, just crank out the details and then, you know, have everyone's input on, on what to do. And as well as, you know, like just reaching out and looking, looking for help from, from mentors or just, just trying to soak in as much information as we, we can in order to help us, you know, um, move forward. And uh, with 2020 and beyond, I think the most exciting for me is is to be able to incorporate my own culture into Momo Shack, right? Um, you know, like, obviously, Momo Shack is a Nepali thing right now because, you know, Chef Minu is, you know, just sharing all her recipes and menus. Um, but I, I love food, too. And, uh, and I want to be able to incorporate, you know, Vietnamese aspects into the cuisine. Um, so, so that I guess like we can share it with even more people, right? The, the original intent of Momo Shack is, is sharing culture and food. And, um, th that was, uh, that's the reason why I was on board. You know, I love doing that. I love engaging with people, uh, just, just the bond over food, man, is, is the number one love language for me. And it's just sharing stories and, and experiences over food. And, and to be able to like do that with right now it's the Dallas community, but in the future, you know, we want to, to branch out, you know, to the U S and, and hopefully uh, on a global level. Lisa, same question for you. What, what are you most excited about? How are you leveraging the lessons that you learned through your case competitions, the conversations that you've had with Tan Franz and with Gary Vaynerchuk and, and just being in the middle of, you know, the digital, not a revolution, just the, the evolution of digital media and how it can impact and, and change food business. What are you guys prepping for? And then, you know, um, it's a selfish question because I can't have this in LA right now. So um, step one, figure out how to, how to ship a box to LA. And then two, like how, how can other people enjoy it? Right. Because sort of the, the disconnect sometimes of a wildly popular food brand on Instagram is if you can't, if you can't, you know, uh, back up it, back it up with distribution, right? Like 
if somebody in New York or even Alaska loves you and they're like, yo, I love this. Like, how do we, how do we get it to them? Right? Like what, what are some of the ideas that you and the team are thinking about to make sure that one, you're not chained to a brick and mortar location or that you're not, you don't become a, a local brand. Um, you know, how do you expand the brand beyond what you guys are doing now in the next chapter of Momo Shack? Yeah, that's a really, really solid question. So one thing that I'm very, very excited about right now is just like, you know, Dan kind of touched on it a little bit, but just the marketing and storytelling piece of Momo Shack. Um, you know, we we're very, very new in that journey. I think it really started when we got on, you know, tea with Gary Vee. Like his main advice to us was immediately turn into a media company. And we're still like scratching our heads trying to figure that out. But I think we're slowly picking up little pieces and putting them together. Uh, so it's only been about like two, three months that we've started that, that process. Because before that, pre-COVID, we were just doing pop-up events. And with pop-up events, like it's, it's so much work and labor that you're very knee-deep into that day-to-day grind. So you don't really have a chance to step out and be like, okay, like, what is our brand? What are our core values? Like, where do we want to take it in that perspective? So that's something I'm very, very excited and looking forward to. Um, mm. Outside of the next step for, for the business in general, in terms of operations, we're trying to get into some convenience stores or like a little mom and pop, you know, grocery stores here in Dallas. Um, hopefully that will be a, a nice stepping stone into getting into maybe, you know, one Kroger or one Whole Foods or something like that. And then that can help Fingers crossed, they can get us to multiple different cities uh, throughout the U.S. That that's sort of a, the long game. Um, you know, short game right now is convenience store. We'll start there, and then the other thing that we're we're starting to work on is uh, Momo kits. So Gary V also gave us that advice, right? So how can we deconstruct the dumpling and then send it out to customers nationally, wherever wherever they are, and then create a community around that. So maybe we hop on a Zoom class like this and Chef Minu is doing her authentic teaching and showing the tips and tricks on how to make, make momos at home, right? That, that's something else that I'm very, very much looking forward to. I think that's the future, man. Um, I'm, I'm a big fan of the logo. I think you guys should make t-shirts, put the t-shirts in the bag. I think you guys can much easier, much e- much more easily ship t-shirts yeah. And then, you know, swag or, you know, I don't know, little, little, little like, I don't know, trinkets or, or dolls or, or something. Cause you, you created a brand, right? Mm-hmm. Um, that the food is the food, right? But if you can create content and if you can create merch or community, um, around it, um, you're, you're really creating a movement. And then, so, um, obviously I, you know, all of us are very familiar with his content and then sort of you know, everybody is a media company first and then whatever it is that you do on the side. And I think if like, that's the big lesson from 2020, right? Like we're all sitting in our bedrooms. We're all sitting in our, you know, in our rooms, creating content to reach people globally. And we no longer need a physical presence of any sort. We no longer need, you know, um, you know, I I understand it's not, you know, not everybody has the privilege and the luxury of doing or saying some of these things. Um, but you know, you can have a food brand and never open up a brick and mortar. Um, you know, especially, um, you know, meal kits or, or, you know, food delivery things are so commonplace now. And, and so that is super exciting, man. Um, I, I hope folks listening have, have learned a lot. Um, cause I certainly have, and I think it's really inspiring to see, you know, our, our brothers and, and sisters really just like taking food that we grew up with, you know, it's, it's sort of 
coming full circle, it's both of your parents brought you guys here, you know, 15 plus years ago as 10 year olds to become American, whatever that means, to live a better life, to have better opportunities. Then 15 plus years later, these guys are just slinging Asian food on the internet, but they're doing it in a way that only you can, right? Because you understand both cultures, you understand both palates, and you understand what makes this authentically your food can't be messed with, but the distribution and the marketing is what's going to make it stand apart. Um, and so I, I am really excited for, you know, Momo Shack of the future, um, whatever that may look like. And if this isn't it, then whatever you guys create next is going to be equally as fun and successful because the tools of digital engagement, of community engagement, creating content, that's the skill, right? The, the dumpling is never the, you know, the, the main event. People think it is, but it's just the thing to get people excited about this entire vehicle and this entire system that you've built behind the stage. So that's super exciting, man. Um, and so for folks in the Dallas area, go to momoshackdumplings.com. Follow them at momoshackdumplings everywhere. Um, check out the Gary video. Check out their photos. Check out uh, Chef Minu's memes. <laughs> man, you know, I mean, this is stereotype breaking stuff, right? Like, how does a Nepalese mom, you know, she she run, she's the funniest meme generator in a crew of, you know, three Gen Z people. Um <laughs> you know, put, putting all of our moms on notice. So that's, yeah. that's very, very cool. And then this is also, you know, sort of cool because, you know, we, we sometimes associate digital anything with young people, right? Like it's, it's a young person's game and, you know, like, I mean, hell I'm 37. And even sometimes I feel like, you know, uh, you know, it's, I feel like it's, I'm behind the times in a way, but it's really cool when you see what, you know, uh, instances of sort of the, the, the reverse of that. So, um, as we always do on our show, we want to end the show with the Dear East Americans letter, and we'll give both of you guys a chance to uh, share your thoughts individually and to share something with the audience here on the Asian Americans that you wanted to share. Perhaps the audience is a younger version of Leeson or Tong that just immigrated here and is just trying to find his or her own way. Um, or maybe it's one of us, um, you know, in our twenties and thirties who are still trying, still struggling with this dual even third identity of how do we make the best and how do we make the most of our parents' sacrifices here. And then so, Lisa, we'll start with you. Um, help us close out the show and finish the letter, Dear Asian Americans. Sure. So my main advice is your biggest competitive advantage is your story, right? No one else has that story. No one else can replicate it. No one else can imitate it. So stick to your story, figure out who you are and really own up to it. Don't shy away from it. Um, it's hard because especially being immigrants, you know, that's something that is never taught even at the dinner table or, you know, we, it's, I hate to say this, but, you know, growing up, we kind of have very high level conversations with our parents. It's not until we get older that we really try to dive into their, their future or their past, sorry, and just try to learn more about our backgrounds and more about their backgrounds. Um, and some people don't even get the opportunity to do that because they just don't have that type of relationship, right? So learn your story and own up to it and and get comfortable sharing it. It's totally okay being vulnerable. That's also something we don't uh, grow up, you know, learning. But there's a lot of power in that. And that's how people connect with you. Thanks, man. I think those are 
the authenticity piece um in in a world where everybody's trying to emulate somebody else you know if you tell your own story one it's yours you have the right to tell it you don't need anybody's permission two nobody can ever accuse you of plagiarism or copying anybody and it's yours man um there's i don't know 7 plus billion people in the world and but there's only one of you and so i, I think those those are really really powerful words Tong, we'll go to you and also ask you to help us write a letter to the community and finish the letter, Dear Asian Americans. Uh, dear Asian Americans, you know, um, it's okay if you, you know, feel lost out there. It's okay if you feel like you're, you know, lonely in the world. You know, like, just know that there's a lot of us out there who feel the same way. And, you know, don't, don't blame your parents as much because at the end of the day, they just want the best for you. And, you know, whatever you do, try to find what your passions are, right? Work really hard at it and, and try to find like-minded people who, who, you know, grew up the same as you, have the same interests as you, you know, get together and, and build something, you know, just do it, just build something and, and it's gonna really gonna take you far. The simple lesson is you got to believe in yourself and whether that is owning your own story, jumping on a podcast, writing a book, or even just writing a tweet, that's content, that's storytelling. We sometimes put on a pedestal, this like content creation thing, but it's just saying something, what's on your mind and then be, you know, honest and real about it. And nobody ever can take that away from you. And you know, I, I think all of our parents came here to provide us a good life, a better life. And we also have to realize that our definition of that good life and how we decide to live it is on us. While we are grateful and we can be both super grateful for everything that they've done for us, the path forward sits in our own hands because it's our life and, you know, um, they don't have to live with all the things that we have to live with, whether it's the things that we experience or the things that or the thoughts that we think. Um, I want to do something fun. If you are listening to us right now on the podcast and you live in the Dallas area, the first two people to reach out to me who live in the Dallas area, I will go get Momo Shacks for you. Oh. I don't know. That's a good challenge. I don't, that, that's a good challenge. Um, <laughs> I don't know. I'm sure we have some folks in the Texas or Dallas area. Or if you have any friends in the Dallas area, Tell them, yo, Jerry's giving us some dumplings. Um, and I'm, I'm so excited for you guys. It's really, really cool. And right now you're, you're sort of in this, you know, you mentioned earlier, like, should we have gone to a food hall? Should we have opened up? And in hindsight, like not doing that was the best idea ever, right? Because you get to plan and you get to, you know, scheme about the next moves with like minimal or even like literally non-existent overhead until you make the next move, right? So... Um, this is really, really cool. I'm glad you guys made that, I don't know, came up with the strategy to go and, and text Gary. I happen to see it. And that's another lesson of itself. Just do it. Um, you know, I don't know what the final number is, but there's a tremendous number of guests who've come on the show where I literally just DM them and said, Hey, I got this show. Do you want to learn more? And you don't, you know, if you don't ask, this doesn't happen. So if you're out there and, and we completely understand how challenging 2020 has been for all of us, 
Um, but, you know, we have this extra time of gift of, of being at home a little bit more and, and to be able to, uh, you know, scheme and to plan for our next move. So, gentlemen, thank you so much. Um, again, if you're in the Dallas area, hit me up. I'll get dinner or lunch for you next time. If you are on the Internet and you want to meet with these guys, if you want to connect with them, learn more about them. The company website is momoshackdumplings.com. The links to their Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube are all going to be in the show notes here, as well as their personal Instagrams and LinkedIn's of where you can connect with them. And just as a reminder for everybody who's listening, wherever you may be listening to us, check it on your restaurant friends. See how you can help. It's not an easy time for anybody, regardless of what city you're in. And if you can, order from local restaurants. And for, for God's sake, don't use those apps. Just call the restaurant directly. They basically take the margin away from these restaurants. So I know it's easy to press a few buttons on your app and food shows up, but fight every urge to press buttons, pick up the phone, call the restaurant, talk to a human being, ask them how they're doing, order the food, go pick it up yourself and you'll feel better about it. They'll make a little bit more money. And we just need to stay together and, and be stronger together until we can get out of this together and, and, and see what comes of it. So Gentlemen, any final thoughts that you want to share? Any any lasting messages that you want to leave with the audience before we say thank you and goodbye? Yeah, I think just one more thing from my side is, you know, you mentioned like just do it, ask. Um, but try to, I would say one more thing on top of that is try to put yourself in that other person's shoes first, right? It's very important to make sure that you're coming from a good place. Because if you're not, it's, it's easy to sniff out and you don't want to, Obviously, if you're trying to build some sort of relationship, you want it to be authentic. So that's that's my last piece of advice on that. But thank you so much for having us, man. This is this is a lot of fun. This is fun. Um, Tong, Tong, any any final thoughts from you? Yeah, for sure. Uh, I just want to say, yeah, Jerry, thank you for reaching out. And uh, you know, after you reached out to us, we started checking out your podcast, and it was honestly one of the very first times that I got to hear voices from from other Asian Americans who had the same experiences. As, as I did. And so it felt very therapeutic in a way just to, to hear everything that I went through, like articulated in, in other people's voices. So, so thank you for doing that. Ah, thank you guys for listening. Uh, we talked off air before we started. You guys really resonated and, you know, felt that the David Chen episode really, you know, was meaningful for you guys. He's the closest person that I know to Dallas yet he's 12 hours away. Um, <laughs> but David, if, if you're listening, send, send somebody uh, to Dallas, go pick up a, a freezer full of dumplings and bring it back to El Paso and then share it with your lovely community there. Guys, I, I am so excited for what's to come. I am so excited for COVID to be over so we can travel again. Um, I, I promise to visit Dallas and to say hello to you guys. And um, until then, you know, uh, you, what you guys are doing Again, not only is important and fun and innovative from a business perspective, but to keep your culture alive and to do that with food and to do it in a way that you're reaching people that, to be honest, our, our parent generation probably couldn't have figured out how to do on their own is, is really important um, You know, as we try to reach and influence and inspire the next generation of Asian American kids, uh, most of them who are being born here, like my kids, uh, it's so cool to see so many of you take the culture and take everything that we know from home and to put our own spin on things and to keep that memory alive. So thank you guys for what you do and best of luck. Please stay safe out there. 
And I'll see you guys very, very soon. Cool. Likewise, Thanks, man. Sure. Take care. Thanks so much for tuning in. That was a great and fun conversation with Li Zen and Tang uh, of Momo Shack. If you're in the Dallas area, please, please, please go visit them. Order if you're a little bit of a drive away. It would be great to see if we can support some fellow Asian American small businesses. I haven't had the chance to eat them myself, but having read the reviews and other people's reactions, I know it's going to be an amazing thing. And shout out to everybody out there uh, doing the side hustle, doing the dream in addition and on top of your day job. An extra shout out to the people who are starting businesses with their parents, uh, really bridging our generations and our cultures and our ideas together uh, to make something really, really beautiful. If you found this episode helpful, fun, engaging, I ask you to share the episode out with a friend or two. Follow us on social media wherever you can. We are at The Eurasian Americans on Instagram, on Facebook. You can find us also on LinkedIn. And on Twitter, we are at DearAsianM. Share with us a note. Uh, just send us a DM through the portals or email us, hello at DearAsianAmericans.com. This is our last Friday episode. Uh, starting next week, we'll be just going once a week on Tuesdays. And on this coming Tuesday, on September 22nd, really excited to share with you a conversation that I had with three authors of the COVID-19 Asian America report that was commissioned and written by members of the Asians at McKinsey ERG group. Really excited to share that with you. Make sure that you're subscribed if you haven't already. Uh, share the episode out with a friend. Get into the Facebook community. Again, that's the Asian Americans community on Facebook. And look forward to engaging with you there, getting to know you more. And again, thank you so much from the bottom of my heart for tuning in, for being a fan, for being a listener. Thank you to Li Zen and Tong for making time for us today. And if you're in the Dallas area, go check out Momo Shack. Wherever you are, whenever you may be listening to this, please stay healthy, safe, and happy. This has been your host, Jerry Wan, and I'll see you next week.